Vaishnavaya. And we're going to be reading from Bhagavad Gita. I think one of my favorite verses. This is chapter 4, text 3. And in this verse we find the clue as to how to get spiritual knowledge and how to get spiritual realization. So the Sanskrit of the verse is Saegayam Ayanteja Yoga Prokdam Brantana Bakosime Sakacheti Rasyam Yetanutana. Very important uh, Sanskrit word here is Rasyam, and the other ones we're going to be looking at is Bakosime Sakacheti. So the translation that you will probably is. Is that very ancient science of the relationship with the Supreme is today told by me to you because you are my devotee as well as my friend, and you can therefore understand the transcendental mystery of this science. So the word rahasya means mystery, and spiritual life is very mysterious. And it appears in our daily lives as if everything's just matter. Unless we're trained or attuned to the spiritual nature of the world, we don't readily see it. I think especially in the modern age where the society, the schools, the governments have a very secular or materialistic filter on everything. So how are you going to see the secret? Later on in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about sutra mani gana eva. Sutra means a thread. And mani is a pearl. Gana is a group. So mani gana is a group of pearls. Eva is like sutras of thread. He said, I am like the thread underneath a string of pearls. So you just look at the pearls, all you see is the pearls. You don't see the thread. And we look at the world and we see, okay, well there's things and there's people and there's cities and there's... And we don't see that underneath there's this thread of spirituality. So Srila Prabhupada says, the whole world is full of Krishna's singing and Krishna's dancing. But we may not perceive it like that. You know, we can understand even from a scientific perspective that all of the atoms and the molecules, there's movement, yes? Electrons are moving. You know, this supposedly solid chair, it's 90% space. Everyone knows that, right? And everything is moving. So when there's movement, there's vibration. When there's vibration, there's sound. And that sound is the singing of Krishna the singing of God and the dancing of God. But we don't usually see that. We just see a chair. Hmm? So how to get to this rahasya? How to get to this mystery that's underneath everything? So here Krishna is giving two conditions. Bhaktosime sakacheti. You have to be bhakta means a devotee and saka means a friend. So if you want to understand the mystery of everything, there has to be some friendship and some devotion. And the, the essential principle behind that is that the ultimate reality is personal. You know, we're sometimes told there is no ultimate reality. Everybody just comes up with their own reality which works for them. And there's no, there's no ultimate reality. People who say like that, they say, ultimately there's no ultimate reality, which is of course interesting. And then those, there are those who think that the ultimate reality is just some sort of mathematical formula or some sort of law of physics. 
But the Bhagavad Gita tells us that the ultimate reality is very personal. If the whole world is full of Krishna's singing, Krishna's dancing, then there's a singer and a dancer. There's someone who's singing. There's a someone. And whenever we want to understand a someone, then there has to be some friendship, some trust between us and that person. Isn't this true in our normal life? Right? If somebody wants to understand something about ourselves, there has to be some relationship of trust. I mean, there's certain information which perhaps we make public. Everybody knows. I mean, and nowadays with the internet and social media, there's a lot of information about people that they make very public. But we're not going to tell everybody everything about ourselves. We have to trust that person, that this person is my friend, that they're devoted to me, they have my interests at heart. And it is, it's that which opens up this mystery. Now, very unfortunately, very unfortunately, this concept of devotion and friendship to Krishna becomes very quickly ritualized and formalized into various sectarian religions. And this Krishna also explains in this chapter where he says, that the real essence of things, dharma, quickly becomes a dharma, becomes undharma. And this has, it happens very, very quickly, and it has to keep getting restored. Something like you have to keep cleaning your house, and you have to keep washing your clothes, and you have to keep washing your body, and you have to keep brushing your teeth. You can't do it one time, and it just stays like that. So the, the tendency in, in this world, the tendency in this world, not in the ultimate realm, but the tendency in this world, is for this concept that the mysteries of life are revealed through friendship and through devotion becomes very stylized. It becomes some sort of formulaic prayers. Yes, I have devotion to you, O oh Great Father. And it becomes something like that and, and some kind of ritual. And the essence of it is lost. Then people forget that it's about a relationship with a person. So I thought we'd look at a little bit about this definition, particularly of friendship with Krishna. And this explanation comes from another book, that written by a great saint named Rupa Goswami, uh, who lived about 500 years ago. And he took the science of bhakti yoga that's given in very broad strokes in the Bhagavad Gita, and he delineates it with fine detail where he gives 64 limbs of bhakti yoga, which can be divided into nine categories, one of which is friendship, becoming Krishna's friend. So what does that mean? And if we look at the, of course, Srila Prabhupada wrote a commentary on this verse, but also many other great saints have written commentaries, and in one of them, uh, by an Acharya named Baladeva Tabushan, he said that in order to penetrate the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of life, we have to remember that Krishna is very attached to us, and in our natural state, we are very attached to him. Okay? So let's look a little bit about what this means to have friendship with Krishna, according to Rupa Goswami. So he divides this into two main categories. One is that Krishna is my friend, and the other is that I am Krishna's friend. Now this concept that Krishna is my friend is explained a little later on in the Bhagavad Gita as one of the essential principles to peace. 
Uh, Krishna speaks a verse which my Guru Srila Prabhupada gives as the peace formula, both on individual and collective <coughs> level. And the Sanskrit is Bhoktaram Yagitapa Sam Sarva Loka Mahesham Suridam Sarva Bhutanam Gyatramam Shantim Richiti. Shantim means peace. So they attain peace. And there's three parts to that that Krishna is the Bhokta. He is the one who's enjoying all our, our sacrifices, our giving, and anything that we dedicate. It is so that he will smile, so he will say yes. That is good. Then he is the controller of everything. He's the controller of the earth, of the stars, of the sun, beyond the universe. And you might say, well, I don't really know if I'd be interested in someone who's some big controller and who wants to be the one to certify that what I do is good. Ah, but suridam. Rid means heart, and su means very dear, very sweet, very good. Suridam is, is this heartfelt friend. He's a benefactor. He only has the good of others in mind. And one who understands that the person who controls everything is a benefactor becomes peaceful. That's pretty logical, right? If you understand that somebody's running the show, that someone's in control of everything, and the person who's in control of everything is loving and kind and caring, then you have no anxieties. Something like the little child who falls asleep in the back of the car. Like they don't even know where the parents are going. Wherever they're going, mommy and daddy are in control and they're benefactors. So what to speak of someone who's really in control? Mommy and daddy are only limitedly in control. But what about someone who's really in control and who's a total benefactor? Mommy and daddy are limited benefactors, not absolute benefactors. So then one is peaceful. That everything that happens is for ultimate good and there's somebody at the controls. There's nobody who can act in any way. There's nothing that can happen that's outside of that ultimate good. Even if we may not be able to see that in our day-to-day -day existence all the time. That things may appear to us differently. We may say, wait a minute, this doesn't seem to be ultimate good. This doesn't seem to be ultimate good. And therefore we have so much anxiety. What will happen? What will happen? Will this happen? Will this be good? Will that be good? Will things work out the way I want? But if I know, hey, wait, somebody's in charge. And that person has everyone's best interest in mind. So that Krishna is my friend, he's my benefactor, and he's my provider. He's providing everything that I need. And this is also a really essential principle in the Bhagavad Gita. In the second chapter, Krishna says, near yoga, shema, atmavan. So yoga, as you probably know, means to link. Huh? Uh, shema is to protect. So shema means what you already have. Yoga is what you don't yet have, you want to link with it. And he says, near yoga chain, don't worry about what you already have and don't worry what you want to get. Atma bam, atma means the self. He said, just be fixed in the spiritual self. Don't be concerned about protecting what you have and getting what you love. Now that doesn't mean that you don't lock your door. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you walk blindfold out into the middle of the street. But it means that that's not where your anxieties are. You're not worried about it. Okay, you do your duty in this world, but without anxiety. And how is that? So Krishna says later in the ninth chapter, yoga kshema vaham yaham. Again, those two words, yoga kshema. Aham means I. Krishna says, I'm taking care of you. I'm taking care of what you have, and I'm taking care of what you need. I'm providing for you. And of course, we can say, well, I don't always like the way that Krishna provides for me. Sometimes he doesn't seem to provide enough for me, or sometimes he seems to provide the wrong thing. 
Sometimes he seems to put the wrong people or circumstances in my life. Sometimes I don't seem to have enough of something. I don't have enough money, I don't have enough health, I don't have enough friends, I don't have enough stimulation in my job or whatever. You know, or, or the, uh, things get lost, somebody comes and steals my stuff, or you know, my house gets carried away by a fire or whatever it may be, and, and I don't like the way he's providing for me. But again, this comes down to Surudam Sarvabhutana, that he's my friend. And so just like sometimes the parents may take away the child's toy and say, you know, it's time to eat now. And no, I want my toy. Why are you taking it away? Or it's time to go to school. And the child says, I want to play. And the child may not see that the parents are benefactors. Or uh, I sometimes go visiting California when I take walks in the morning, early in the morning. There are always snails on the sidewalk. Always, every morning. You know, they come out at night when it's cooler and there's some dew on everything, some condensation. And as the sun starts rising and everything dries up, Southern California is pretty dry. So they have to find the grass. And generally the snails, you know they're going to make it, but sometimes you know they're not going to make it. Sometimes you see they've ended up on the road and they're going to go to the curb and there's just no way they're going to make it. As you're walking on the sidewalk, you see so many crushed snails, you know, crushed by people's baby strollers or on the street, crushed by the cars. So I would make the habit when I walked, if I saw a snail that definitely was not going to make it, I would pick it up and put it in the grass. Now when I picked it up and put it in the grass, to the snail that was a catastrophe. It was an utter catastrophe. You know, some monster from nowhere, some unseen, invisible monster is picking me up and flying me through the air to an unknown destination. And they immediately become frightened and they go inside their ship. But actually on their benefit. But they're not seeing it like that, not understanding like that. You know, I'm sure you've all had times when you had an insect stuck inside your house that couldn't get out, right? And it's, it's beating its wings against the window. And you know it's going to become exhausted and, and die of thirst and starvation. And it's just furiously beating its wings against the window. And you're doing whatever you can to get it to go out the door, right? Or sometimes you open the window and then it goes to the part of the window that's not open. And you get so frustrated, you're like, I'm trying to help you. And so that's really our position with relationship to Krishna. That the things that we think in our lives, this is a catastrophe. You know, everything's being destroyed. <laughs> I'm just being moved around against my will. And it's terrible. But when we see, when we have this confidence that Krishna is our benefactor and he's actually providing for us, once we let go of that anxiety and we have that trust, then we gain real peace. And one who feels like this uh, sees that Krishna is providing both materially and spiritually. Now, of course, Krishna's main interest is to provide for us spiritually. Certainly, he's concerned to provide for us materially. Good parents want to make sure their children have enough playthings, but they're far more interested that the children have food and education, yes? And the parents will sacrifice toys for the sake of education and for the sake of a meal. All the toys are extra. You have a room full of toys, but that's not the main thing. So certainly Krishna's interested that we have material prosperity. That's explained in the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. 
that by living a proper life, the whole earth will be prosperous. But that's not his main interest. And the reason it's not his main interest may be very difficult for us to understand. And that is that this life is not real. It exists, but it's not what it appears to be. It's something vastly, vastly different than it appears to be. It really is a big collective dream. This whole life is something like a computer game. You know, a dream we know is not real. I mean, it's real in that it's electrical impulses in the brain. But we know it's not reality because it's not shared. If I dream about you and then I see you and I say, I had a dream about you and we were eating together and you say, well, I, I didn't eat with you. And that way we decide, oh, I guess that didn't actually happen. The reason we think our life is actually happening is because I say we were in the room and you say, yes, we were in the room. And we all agree, yes, we were in the room. But Krishna says in the 5th and 13th chapter, he says, no, that's not what's happening anymore. He said the soul is just witnessing and not really doing anything. So it's something like a computer game. You're doing something. You're communicating to the game through the mouse and through the keyboard. But you're not doing what you appear to be doing. You appear to be a character in the game that's running and jumping and fighting and so many things. But you're not really doing any of that. You're simply witnessing and you're communicating your desires to the game. And many people can play a game together. Yes, I've never played one of these games, but I've watched people play them. And many people are playing together and they go to the same fantasy world together. And they have some sort of shared experience. So in one sense, you can say it's real. It's something. It's not that it's unreal in the sense that it's nothing. It's something. What is the game? What is it, what is it actually? You could say, well, it's the machine that's metal and plastic. You could say, it's the electricity flowing through the machine. You could say, it's the ones and zeros that make up the computer program. Right? It's something, but it's not what it appears to be. It certainly isn't characters running and jumping and fighting and whatever they're doing. It isn't that. It's something else. And most certainly, the people that are playing the game are not doing the actions of the characters in the game. You know, or another example would be if you're watching a movie with, with many people together watching a movie and everyone is identifying with the characters in the movie. And when the character's in trouble, everyone's afraid. And when the character gets something wonderful, everyone is happy. But first of all, the movie's not really happening. When you're watching it, it's just lights on the screen. And even what you're watching, you're not watching something that was really happening. You're watching actors pretending that it was something. So something's happening. There's, you can't say it's false in the sense that it has no existence. But it is not what it appears to be. And certainly, we as the audience members watching the film are not doing what the characters are doing. Although we feel their emotions through attachment. When they're happy, we feel happy, yes. When they're frightened, we feel frightened. But it's not us. So this world is called the world of maya or illusion. Maya means that which is not. Something is happening here, undoubtedly. There's something. It's not that the world doesn't exist at all, and it's not that there's nothing happening here. But what's happening here is very different from what we really think is happening. Like the three different colored lights that combine on the screen, there's three different modes of nature combining and creating these illusory stories and illusory characters with which we identify. We are not these bodies, we are not these minds, and we are not actually going through these experiences. 
we are witnessing them, and through our attachment, we think we're going through them. And through our attachment, we feel, oh, now I'm in pain, now I have happiness, now I have this, now I have that. I mean, it is possible for anyone, just by going into deep hypnosis, to stop feeling the pains and pleasures of the body, or by going into a deeply meditative state. Anybody can be trained to do that in about a half an hour. And then they become, you see immediately, oh, I'm a witness of the body, I'm the observer. I'm not really doing all of these things. So Krishna's main interest in being the benefactor and being the provider is not so much on this platform of illusion. What he's really interested in is being the benefactor and the provider to have us awaken and to have us become enlightened. Now, if we can have a nice illusory story and also become enlightened, that's, that's wonderful. There's no objection. It's not that Krishna's interested in having us have an unpleasant illusory story. But that's not terribly important. That isn't what's really, really, really important. Like the parent is not really so concerned that the fantasy game that the children are playing with has a happy ending, or even that it has an ending. Okay, it's time for dinner, kids, you know. But I haven't finished my story game with my dolls. No, no, it's time for dinner. So Krishna, as the benefactor and as the provider, is providing everything for our enlightenment when and if we seek it. And he may also provide everything in the world of illusion, depending on what's conducive for our awakening. If it's not conducive, then he's not terribly interested in it. Because frankly, when we come to an awakened state, we're not terribly interested in it either. So one who sees that Krishna is my friend never gives up that shelter for some false material shelter. So when a materialistic consciousness takes all sorts of things as their shelter, our primary shelter in materialistic consciousness is our body, our mind, other people, our family, our friends, other people of our same nationality, and our things. These are generally our shelters. But none of them are very good shelters. Is our body a very good shelter? Can you count on it? Is it always there for you when you want it? Always does exactly what you want it to do? No. Is the mind a very good shelter? Can you count on your mind, your talents, your memory, your intelligence, your knowledge? Is it always there when you want it? Does it always obey you and do what you want it to do? What about friends, family? Are they always there when we need them? Even if they want to be, are they always there? Are they always capable? Can we always depend on them? Do they always even understand what we want? Are they always even willing to give what we want? Even if they understand and they're willing, are they always capable? Any guarantee they'll always be there? Then what about our things? Our cars, our homes, our computers, our phones, our microwave ovens, things that we have. Do they always do what we want them to do? They always there for us. Can we count on them? So one who takes Krishna as a friend says, Krishna, you are my shelter. I'm not going to have the body, the mind, other people or other living beings. Maybe instead of other people, one has a dog or a cat or a horse as their shelter. So our body, our mind, other living beings and things as my shelter. These are compared to fallible soldiers like plastic soldiers. You know, they look like soldiers, but they can't really do anything. They're not fully competent. 
So in this way, we take that Krishna is my friend. Krishna is my friend. That I trust that he has my best interest in heart. He's my benefactor. That he will never do anything to hurt me. That everything is happening for my ultimate spiritual good. And that he's providing everything that I need always for my spiritual enlightenment. And as far as possible, everything that I need, even in the illusory world. And that he's my real shelter. He's always dependable. Krishna says, He's always within the heart. He's always with me. I'm never separated from him. No matter what. No matter what I do, no matter what I think, still he never leaves me. I'm always in the presence of God. I'm, I'm never separated from his presence. I may be separated from a friend, from a family member. I may be separated from my machines. I may even be separated from my body and be floating at the ceiling in the hospital room or whatever. But I'm never separated from the Supreme. So this is the one side that Krishna is my friend. And really trusting that Krishna is my friend generally takes some time. It generally takes some time. Usually we're not so sure. Well, is Krishna really my friend? Is he really going to provide? Is he really going to be there for me? Usually we test. We test, and as we, we see that he's our friend, then gradually we trust more and more and more and more and more. And as we trust more and more and more, then he reveals more and more of the mysteries of the universe. Okay, but it's not one-sided, not just that Krishna is my friend. What about my being Krishna's friend? So there's certainly a lot of people in various religions and philosophical groups that will talk about that God is your friend. Usually they talk more about how God is your father and God is the creator, and they even talk about how God is kind of mean and angry and jealous and you have to be afraid of him, rather than that he's your best friend. But you very rarely hear anyone talk about becoming Krishna's friend. How do we become Krishna's friend? What does it mean to be a friend? It means that I care about the happiness of my friend. And I'm willing to go through some trouble and sacrifice for my friend's happiness. Isn't that what it means to be a friend? Right? I mean, if we want to talk about love, you know, sometimes people have analyzed, so what is love? And we could, we could think about love as love means I find somebody fascinating, they're interesting, right? And that whatever I love, whoever, whatever I love, is not only fascinating, but important to me. I might